0: Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the EMILY Program, where we put it all together for you. Peacemeal discusses topics related to eating disorders, body image issues, and how society may contribute to distorted thinking. Please keep in mind that we may discuss difficult topics, and we ask that you use your own discretion when listening, or that you speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lampert. Today, we're happy to welcome a guest who is non-binary to hear a perspective that remains underrepresented in eating disorder conversations, those of people who are transgender, gender nonconforming, and or non-binary. And I'm so excited to have Dr. Debbie Seacrest with us. Debbie is a math professor at a small college in Montana. They love teaching and sharing their love of math with students who may not have seen the fun side of math before. I don't know that I've seen the fun side as regularly, Debbie, so maybe we can just, you know, touch on that. But they are also extremely passionate about advocating for mental health. And they often work closely with school counselors to get students the help that they need. When not working on math problems with their spouse, Debbie enjoys Shotokan karate, singing, role-playing, and playing with their two young kids. Welcome, Debbie. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You are welcome. Tell us a bit of your eating disorder story. When and how did you recognize that you that you had this illness?
1: Well, it started a long time ago. I was very observant as a kid and I noticed the the diet culture so when adults said you know oh wow you're getting so big when I was three it was like oh no I need to stop this my really vivid memory from back then I was holding my parents hands and I wanted them to swing me up onto the sidewalk and I asked them to and they said no you're too big now and I was just devastated and what I didn't realize was that I was young enough that I was mostly exempt from those unreasonable expectations, but the fact that they exist at all just continues to bother me. Uh, for a long time, I you know, had this disordered body image. I remember being weighed at, in elementary school by the school nurse and carrying that little slip of paper back and just keeping it Tighten my fist so that no one could see and being sure that if my teacher saw, she would hate me. I just, I vividly remember that. I my mean, teacher saw she would hate me and she was a wonderful teacher. I don't know why I thought that. But it remained just about body image and not about eating until I was about 11. And that summer, I don't know what changed. I didn't do anything on purpose, but I noticed that my clothes were getting too big. And then I went back to school after that summer and my math teacher, whom I just love, said, oh, you lost weight. You look great. What's your secret? And I didn't know what to say. I mean, I didn't think I had lost weight, but it was, well, okay, she thinks that that was good. So I need to actually lose weight. I need to lose more weight. And things just got worse and worse. But I felt like, well, you know, I, I eat something at almost every meal, so I don't really have a problem. And it wasn't until I was sixteen. Um, I was at a I was a counselor at a math camp for junior high students. And I was watching a video of the camp that one of the moms had put together. And I saw someone just kind of from a distance. I saw the back of this person and I just, you know, saw the the outline and it was like, this is what I want. This is what I need. I need to be this thin. And then the camera panned a little bit and I realized it was me. That figure that I was so jealous of was me. I was just astonished. And I started backpedaling immediately you know, really not that thin, and it's been a couple weeks, and I've probably gained weight since then, and so on, but that was kind of my wake-up call of, you know, maybe my perceptions are a little distorted.
0: Wow, that is a such a poignant story on so many levels. I mean, really, first of all, thank you for sharing that, and thinking about the three-year-old you, hearing that, you know, it must be the wrong wrong size because I, I can't do that thing anymore. And that's that's such a, a personal sort of hot button for me. Like, why do we tell kids, Oh, you're getting so big? Like I know we think it's good and and how are they supposed to hear that?
1: Right. So that just oh resonates so much with me. Especially when we criticize ourselves for being big. Right. Which, you know, I work very hard not to do in front of my kids. <laughs>
0: Right. It's just such an iterative, iterative process that it can just be so, so tricky. And then I think about the, that story about the camp video is just so powerful in so many ways. One of the first things I thought of was sort of how brain science is starting to help us understand a little bit why the body distortion happens and that body perception distortion happens and your story, your explanation of that is is so similar to a number of other stories I've heard, and transparently, even personally, I had an experience sort of similarly, where when your brain doesn't quite know it's you, you see you differently, and yes. that's just incredibly fascinating. And I, I don't, I don't know that we have all of the the brain science explanations behind that, but there's some real early. Work looking at like why does that distortion happen? But that's just fascinating that you had that experience too of of when your brain didn't know it was you, mm-hmm. it experienced it more accurately than when your brain thought it was you. So I could digress down the neurobiology path forever, but you won't. Uh, but I just I just think that's really really fascinating.
1: Yeah, I've had a number of friends with eating disorders or body image issues, and I've said you know show me a picture of you, and I cover up their face. And it's like, oh, right. <laughs> it it's just it looks so different when you even when you do know it's you, but you don't quite have that that same reference point.
0: Right, right. That immediate association, yes. It is so, so fascinating. Okay, so you you're you're in this place where you're like, oh, oh maybe maybe something's going on. Uh so tell us about you know, your, your process into starting the recovery process, what, what happened next in that story of, of the counselor, 16 year old you? Yeah,
1: good question. It's kind of a complicated story. I started out not really doing anything about it. Um, I was, I was seeing a counselor and I started seeing a counselor when I was 12 or so but I never admitted that I thought I was fat because I figured that if I did that, then they would try to make me gain weight. So I just said, you know, oh, of course I know I'm thin. You know, really lying to myself as well as to people trying to help me, which I really regret. But I think one thing that made a huge difference for me is when I started karate. Our school had a policy that we had to take at least three semesters of PE at our college. And I had done some Shotokan Karate when I was a kid. And so I decided to get back into that. And I just had no energy. You know, I was so undernourished that I just had to sit on the sidelines and watch people do things for so long. And I was I was tired of it and I was frustrated by it. And so I started to gradually eat more, you know, just so that I could do this thing that I wanted to do. And it became a huge part of my life. Um, I ended up getting my first degree black belt right around when I graduated from college. So that was a, a huge part of my recovery. Things have been up and down since then. Sometimes things are going great and sometimes things aren't. But talking with close friends and family has made a huge difference. I I tried to do things on my own for a long time and that didn't work. And then I tried reaching out to friends and family for support. And that was incredibly helpful, but I really needed some professionals too. And a friend recognized this before I did and did the research. I live kind of in the middle of nowhere And he said, okay, it's two hours away, but this is where you need to go. And this is who you need to call. And he just kind of, you know, did everything but calling for me (laughs) Uh, because I just, I needed that push. And so that was two years ago. Um, I've been working with the Eating Disorder Center of Montana since then. And I feel like I am so far along the recovery process, and then I see just how much further I have to go, but it's not a—it's not an issue of me minimizing the past. I've come a long way. I still have a long way to go, but I've come a long way. I love that perspective,
0: and and particularly the you know the the genetics that that we you know believe contribute to traits that are you know pretty common among people who get eating disorders. Some of those traits tend to make us forget about. Mm-hmm the progress and the achievements and sort of look to the, yes, and I have all of this stuff left to do. And so I can't really appreciate what I have done or congratulate myself until I get it all done. Right. I love that perspective of really appreciating where you have been. and sure there can be more to do and you've come a long way and that's really important to continue to value. So I really appreciate that. Yeah. I wonder if you can speak a little bit to body image concerns. What what body image concerns have you experienced as a non-binary person? You know, how have those concerns exacerbated your illness and or complicated your recovery if you have thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. Um I remember again at a very young age, probably 3 or 4, seeing my mom. I don't know if I asked about her chest or what it was, but you know, finding out like, oh, you know, you're going to look like that. And I was just like, no, that's, that doesn't feel right. But I didn't know why. And I figured it was just something that people, you know, would be comfortable with as they got older. But when I did get older and started junior high, I was pretty young for my grade Um, So I didn't really need a bra in that sense, but I needed one because we were changing in PE and I would have been made fun of without one. And I just remember like crying when, you know, we got this and I couldn't explain why, because I just didn't have the vocabulary for it. I didn't have the understanding. So, you know, as my body tried to change and develop during puberty, I fought it. and. I think some of it was, I was used to being the youngest one in my grade and so on. So I was used to being kind of physically immature. And some of it was that my body was trying to go through this this process that I didn't want it to go through. And I didn't even have the words to say, I don't want this process. I, I think part of it is I didn't even realize that most people felt differently for years. It's still really hard for me. That distribution depends on hormones. And so after restoring weight, you know, I felt like my body was more feminine. And I just really continue to struggle with that.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So if you can speak a little bit to, to what extent have you found the care that you have received to be gender affirming and competent in, in meeting your needs, you know, as a non-binary person having those those thoughts and feelings, and you know, each person is unique. But I'm really curious about your experience in that way because we know that we know that not all treatment is is affirming, right? You know, and, and sensitive and aware. So if you could speak a little to that, we'd love to hear that piece.
1: Yeah, I think there are some things that you know centers can do that can make a big difference, and. I feel fortunate. I'm far enough in my gender journey that I can talk about these things. Even you know, this center is open to men and women. You know, that's I'm I'm very glad that it's open to men. I'm very glad that it's open to women. But there are others out there who aren't included in the in those two categories. So saying you know, the center is open to everyone, or if you want to be very specific, everyone regardless of gender, something like that. And I've been fortunate enough to talk with the people who do the website for the program that I go to. And most of the language was already very, very good. But there were a few times when it said men and women or something like that. And they're already looking into it, which feels so affirming. Occasionally, people slip up and use she, her pronouns. And to be honest, sometimes I do too. You know, I, I started using they, them pronouns a couple years ago. And I still pick up the phone and say, this is she, when someone asks for me. And I'm, I'm still working on that. I didn't do it this morning, but it's, it's a process. So I understand that. And my, my team has been really willing to have these conversations with me. And I look forward to having more conversations about gender personally and in terms of how, how people can be accepting and affirming of others regardless of gender.
0: Absolutely. Have you found any specific sort of resources or tools that you've found particularly helpful in in recovery that are gender affirming and competent? It sounds like the conversations you're having with the treatment center that you're participating in have been really terrific in terms of engaging and, and seeing some change. But curious if you found other tools or resources out there that we should know about or make people aware of as we hopefully continue to move the field in the direction of having more resources and and tools and conversations available. So what's been helpful for
1: you? I think the biggest tool that's been helpful for me has been not so much a mechanical type tool, but just advocating for myself. And that's advocating for myself You know, with regards to gender, with regards to the eating disorder, with regards to anything else. A few weeks ago, I needed to transition therapists because my therapist, who was just amazing, moved out of the program, and I needed to switch to someone who was in the program. And I was scheduled to meet with the new person, but meanwhile, in group, I was working with therapists that I really, really liked. And I knew that, you know, this new person whom I hadn't even met was going to have a lot more time in her schedule and so on. But there was one group session where it was actually just me and Warren, the therapist. And I said, you know, I, I understand if you can't, but I really enjoy working with you. Is there a way that you can squeeze me into your schedule? And he said, yes. Um, I really didn't expect him to be able to do that, but he said, yes. And we've had really productive therapy appointments since then. And the virtual intensive outpatient program that I was doing recently ended because most people were going back to the in person and I'm just too far away to do that. So I was really disappointed and I reached out to my dietitian and said, you know, these meals that we've been having together over Zoom have been so important. Can we possibly continue that? somehow occasionally and she was amazing and scheduled my therapy appointment you know around lunchtime she had to do lunch with another group already but she you know saved her lunch and had it with me and we could talk about the food and that's just been so helpful advocating for myself and it feels really good whether it works or not i mean it certainly feels better when it works but Just knowing that I can advocate for myself has been huge. Um, Having relationships with other people who have similar issues or different eating disorders or no eating disorder, getting that perspective from a lot of people has been really helpful too. I recently went to lunch with a friend from the intensive outpatient group and I ordered a, a slice of pizza. And it was this really weird shape. It was like this triangular, but not, not a typical triangular slice. It was the whole pizza was triangular and it was just this weird shape. And I didn't know how much to eat. And I think she really understood that because, you know, she felt the same way. Whereas if I'm with, you know, my sister who has a great relationship with food and I say, like, how much of this do I eat? And, you know, she'd be like, well, eat until you don't want to eat more. <laughs> Um, and that's been kind of a recent revelation for me too, that most people, you know, listen to their bodies to decide when to stop eating as opposed to listen to when their brain says they've had enough.
0: Right. Oh, the, the triangular pizza just makes me chuckle. Like, what are they thinking? Messing with the <laughs> machine? Like, exactly. how are you supposed to decide? Like, sure, it's a triangle, but you're right. It's not the same kind of triangle. Oh my goodness, listening to your story, I feel like I'm sitting at that restaurant staring at that triangle pizza with you, thinking, huh, <laughs> well let's <laughs> figure this out. But it is it is a, a beautiful illustration of of um what the body can do in large part often what we're doing in in that sort of journey to recovery is we we do want people to be able to look at that pizza and say well that's an odd shape but I'm just going to start eating and then when I when my body tells me it's done I'm going to stop eating that's a it's a great place to to be and it takes it takes a lot of work to get there and a lot of practice and uh that that triangle pizza story will be a really good story for you for a long time I think <laughs> you <Yeah. laughs> really going to be a one to think about and just reflect on as you continue on your journey. That's just a a really lovely sort of moment in time. I think I'm hearing in your, in your stories, like the connection and the ability to have people support, even if they don't quite know what you're going through. And when they do, wow, that really feels good. When somebody can understand like, yeah, I understand how, how hard that pizza was, you know, pizza's hard enough, and now it's the wrong shape. I think that is some of the beauty that we try to uh, hopefully bring in that treatment recovery process of that that support and helping people feel
1: not not alone. Yeah, but it's also helpful to me when other people have different perspectives to offer as well. So you know, I can talk to my sister and she can just say these things. I'm like, oh, that never occurred to me that without this eating disorder you know, people can do X, Y, and Z, or, you know, I'll talk to a friend. And sometimes just the the things that people can say can make such a huge impact on me. I remember a couple, a couple things that were said. One of them was I told my friend, this was when he was first trying to get me to go to EDCMT, the eating disorder center. I said, well, I don't mind being hungry. And he said, you're the only one willing to see you in pain. You're the only one willing to see yourself hungry. You don't mind, but we do. And that made a big impact on me. Or another time, this was recently, and I was talking to another friend and I said, hunger is safe. And he said, no, hunger is hunger. I saw that and I realized, okay, it's not some terrible punishment that I deserve. It's not some something that means I've failed at ignoring it or that I've succeeded in terms of eating little enough to be hungry. It's just hunger.
0: Yeah, that is a a powerful perspective, right? You know, again, sort of taking a little detour down the neurobiology pathway, we have some pretty clear evidence that the brains of people who... Are predisposed to have an eating sort of particularly one that is restrictive and experiences hunger like that is, uh, it's just wired a little differently. And, and that experience isn't, it's maybe not as uncomfortable. It, it might be sort of uncomfortable, but it also, like you said, feels safe and can be less anxiety producing than eating, right? In many cases, right? So, so that, that sort of, crystal clear, like hunger is hunger. Hunger is really your body saying, Hey, knock knock, (laughs) time to Yep. Get some energy. And that really being able to to sort of pivot and look at that differently than, oh yeah, that I, I could do that. And then recognizing that doing that is can be really scary and feel unsafe. And so then with support, maybe you can feel a little safer. And so all the pieces sort of come together in that process of Yep, hunger is this thing. And if I can get support around it, then maybe it'll feel a little safer. And if I keep, keep trying and keep doing over time, I on that sort of recovery journey, it'll get a little bit more comfortable. Yeah. Do you have thoughts from your own experience or, or others? How can the recovery community, the eating sort of recovery community, whether that's treatment centers or clinicians or organizations, Uh, online recovery spaces how can we collectively better serve trans or non-binary people like how can we do a better
1: job yeah I've thought about that both in terms of eating disorder centers helping me and in terms of me as a professor helping my students because I think a lot of the principles are similar so for one thing I advocate everyone giving their pronouns saying i use he him i use she her i use they them whatever pronouns they use or some people don't even use pronouns at all we're doing this interview over zoom and you'll notice i have my pronouns right after my name and i keep it like that all the time and the only other person i've seen who's who's done that consistently has been my sister who uses she her pronouns But it's just so validating when I see other people doing it, whether they're trans or not. Um, I think it's also important to be clear about who the treatment centers are for. You know, if this says women only, does that mean they need to be cisgender? So they were assigned female at birth. Can they be trans women? Can they be non-binary? You know, just knowing where we're welcome is important.
0: Absolutely, and you're you're right. Language is is so so important. Yeah, and our attention to it is so important. And we don't always get it right. And being open to taking feedback and making it right and learning is so important because we we're all learning and and growing. And we need to listen to each other and learn from each other to continue to do that. Right. Yeah. And that's that's sort of what you know, in in a in a in a more meta way, like that's what recovery and treatment is all about, right? Is learning and listening with each other in that tandem process. I know that I've learned, you know, I have lots of degrees and all that jazz, but I have I've learned the most from people that I've worked with over my career. Right. And we Mm -hmm. learn and we listen and we change and we we acknowledge and we move through. And so I think that's really an important you're making about let's let's be really continually attentive to how we use language because it is you know in, in a therapeutic sense you know a lot of the group therapy and individual therapy we do it's talk therapy it's language right we do therapy with language that's really important so i really appreciate that in that kind of language realm you know there's there's a lot of language and thoughts and words and phrases around bodies and body positivity and body image. I'm curious what what you think about some of the, you know, we've sort of transitioned into a, a world where there's more, you know, certainly more body positivity and awareness of our language now than there certainly was five or 10 or 15, definitely, you know, 15, 20, 25 years ago. And there's so much accessibility to information in terms of, of uh, social media and the internet and what have you. Um, What are your thoughts about these sort of current, maybe the more current body positive phrases like all bodies are good bodies or there's nothing wrong with your body? What do you think about those and and where, maybe even where they might evolve over time as we go on this journey together?
1: Yeah, for me, I think there are a couple things about body positivity. It's very hard for me. And I think some of that is because I'm non-binary. And some of that is just because, you know, since I was three, I felt like my body is wrong, but I, I found that body neutrality works a lot better for me. And, you know, my body is just a body. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just the body that allows me to do these things that I like doing, whether it's karate or teaching or playing with my kids. I think that there are some people who, you know, feel that those thoughts, you know, all bodies are good bodies and you need to love your body, but I think it's okay to have parts that you don't love. And if, if you are a woman, your body is a woman's body, regardless of what other people see when they look at you. The same for men. And, you know, people look at me and assume I'm a woman. But my body is a non-binary body because I am non-binary. And that realization has been so important for me. I don't owe anyone androgyny. I don't need to look a certain way to be valid. I'm trans enough, you know, as I am. And that has been really important. I think finding some healthy non-eating disorder ways of feeling comfortable has been really important for me. So I wear a chest binder. That makes me feel so much better. If you're interested in that, please do it properly. Uh, But whether you find a chest binder or surgery helpful to make your body fit how you feel it should be in terms of gender. I think that's okay. And it's totally valid to say, you know, I don't need any of that and this is my body and this is what I want it to be. So the, I I definitely understand the appeal of body positivity, but to me, it's just, it's not congruent with who I am and what my body looks like. I need to be focused on what my body does.
0: Yeah. I think I think that makes a ton of sense. It makes me think about different ways that we think about neutrality in eating disorders. You know, I'm a dietitian. I can't help but think about the the food parts and how we've really uh, shifted our language, at least here at the Emily Program, and I, th- I think much more broadly, but particularly around neutrality with food. That it's it's sort of a I I, I don't. Really don't mean to compare bodies and food. I'm really talking, comparing sort of neutralities, but you know, we, we don't also have to look at food as this or that. It's kind of like your friend was saying, hunger is hunger, like food is food and it mm-hmm. doesn't have to be good or bad. And maybe it just is. Right. And we can be neutral about it. And if, we were more neutral about it, I think really, our approach to a lot of diet culture and even you know sizeism would probably shift a bit if food were just food mm-hmm. and it were also accessible and and people had food security and those really other right. important pieces and if we didn't have this social sort of obsession with food and the good food and the bad food of which it's just food and had a neutrality. With it, that really, I think helps people change their relationship with food generally for the positive experience of the person. Maybe there's an element of that, that, that I, I hear when you speak of body neutrality, which I, I, I agree with that it, it, it is. And it can, it can be, it's, it's your experience. It's your relationship. It's your, it's, it's your own fundamental self. Absolutely. That's really critically important to so respect that in in each other, and maybe in our maybe in our zeal to get you know away from all the body negativity and the, having to make our bodies a certain way to do whatever get whatever we we went a little far in the like love it all, and yeah, people don't wake up and love it all every day, right waking up and being <laughs> is is a is a beautiful thing. I I will be curious to see how that evolves. And I know the concept of body neutrality is getting a fair amount of conversation, so I'll be curious to see where it goes as we evolve. I'm I'm thinking about and you know, I'm sort of thinking about your your three year old self, your eleven year old self, you know, those selves those time points you talked to us a little bit about. From where you are now, what would you say would you say to your eleven year old self now?
1: I think the first thing I would want to say is that non-binary people exist, trans people exist. This path that seems like it's been laid out before you does not have to be your path. I think that would have been very reassuring. Um, I tell them to advocate for themselves. I'd say. You know, sometimes people may, may minimize what you're going through, but you are sick enough. Um, there's a very good book by that title that I found very helpful. But just the idea that, you know, it doesn't take a certain weight or a certain size or a certain illness or whatever to to need help. If you think you might need help, you probably need help. And kind of along those lines, just being open to help. Because for so long, I was afraid that I would be forced into something I didn't want. And so I I just rejected even the thought of, of sharing what was going on. And I think, especially now, I don't really know what you know, a hospitalization program would have looked like back when I was 11 but i think especially now people are much more understanding and willing to work with the individual it's not something where you know you're forced to do something when you just really aren't ready for it that's what i was afraid of i was afraid of being forced into things before i was ready i think by choosing recovery when i was ready and by choosing it in certain amounts, at certain times, in certain ways, that has been very helpful to me.
0: Yeah, I, I I think that that concept of choosing in a variety of ways, in a variety of times, is is really important because I think that you know for years I've often told my clients you know nobody nobody chooses to have an eating disorder, nobody would choose to have an eating disorder <laughs> and recovery takes some choices and takes a lot of choices and it doesn't even take just one right like okay I'm going to do it it takes sometimes it takes one every minute yeah and and you need to keep choosing and it's hard to keep doing that but i think your your comments really underscore that it is a process right you get to keep choosing and and maybe mm-hmm. there's a positive tension in that 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 you choose maybe a little more than you want to because you know it's probably you know the right way to do it or the right choice to make the right way to go but it's not just a one like okay i'm i'm choosing to do it all and i'm letting everything go that has has felt safe in my brain even though part of my brain thinks that it is not at all safe to be you know, eating like that, or this eating disorder is not invested in my safety and security. This eating disorder is invested in my illness and, and wreaking havoc on my life. And it sometimes can feel safe. And so I think that we try to reiterate that, that it is, we will ask you to, to do things that are hard in treatment and hopefully we'll be able to ask you to do them in just an amount that is is tolerable, but making, continuing to make those choices all along. Are, are so important. I think the uh, the other thing that struck me the the book that you mentioned, "Sick Enough," is that Dr. Jane Gaudiani's book. Yes, yes, it's a beautiful book, and I think that 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 title is, is so pertinent, right? Because people do wonder if they're sick enough, and and right, if you if you think you might have an eating disorder, and you wonder if you're sick enough it is very likely that you have an eating disorder <laughs> and then you are sick enough. If you have an eating disorder, you deserve care. Right. And so that concept of, of am I sick enough? There's not a magic line. We really, people come in in all places and and we want to help people in all of those places. And if someone comes in and they clearly don't have an eating disorder, there's not an eating disorder provider anywhere you know, that's invested in, Telling you you have an eating disorder when you don't, right? So, right? so that's important too that if you don't have an eating disorder, we will tell you that. And most people, when they think they do, they usually do.
1: I think some people think about treatment and think that they don't have enough of an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. It, it reminds me of when you look in the fridge and you see something and you're like, oh, is this bad? I don't know. I'll just put it back and wait and then eventually it will be clearly bad and then I'll throw it out. Right. <laughs> so, you know, let me just box up all this and put it aside and let it get worse and then I'll go in and get help. Right. Right. We
0: don't do that with a rash. Like, oh, I've got this little rash. Right. Oh, it's getting a little bigger. Maybe I'll wait till it's giant and it's covering my <laughs> yes. entire body. Before I'm really sure I have a rash and I deserve to get care for it. And right, we don't, we don't do that. Um, but we, we do absolutely. I just did that the other day where I'm like, nah, I think it's still probably good. I don't know. We'll just put it back in the fridge and see. Turns out it was not still good. And so <laughs> I should have taken action a little earlier. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, maybe that's even tied to the, Again, sort of those traits of, of the illness that uh, we want to make sure it's just right. We want to make sure it's the right thing. And yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a, a brilliant sentiment you have that if you're thinking, oh, I don't know if it's enough. Yep. Go. <laughs> yes. go. Ask somebody to see what they think. That's really important. Is there anything else that you would add that you think is really important? For somebody listening to this, anything else you want to, would want to say to, to, to that person?
1: I think one thing is you are not alone. I'm obviously not the only person who struggles with an eating disorder and is trans or non-binary. There are, you know, there's a Facebook group that I'm a part of that's really been helpful. There are Blogs out there. I have my own blog that I keep. It's very, it's not something that I update every Monday and Wednesday or anything like that. But it's been really helpful for me to share my thoughts either with people that I know or with people that I don't know who might be in similar situations or who might know someone in a similar situation. Uh, that's been that's been very helpful for me.
0: It, it underscores what you said earlier that connection, right? having understanding is so important and finding that those places where you feel understood and connected are, are critical.
1: I think also in terms of coming out as non-binary for me, it wasn't a, you know, one time, okay, everybody, I'm going to, you know, just get this tattooed on my forehead and go out and everybody will know that I'm non-binary. It was, okay, I, I talked to, you know, my sister who even brought up the idea, and I said, well, "Non-binary, what does that even mean?" I talked to, you know, my friends. I talked to my family. I talked to more and more people, and eventually, you know, came out on on Facebook, and I found the same thing with recovery. You don't just choose recovery once; you choose it over and over. Sharing that I'm in recovery has been very valuable for me too. It was something that I kept hidden for a long time, not because I was ashamed of having been anorexic, but I was ashamed of not being anorexic anymore. That's where the shame came in. And only recently have I been able to overcome that and say, you know, yes, I'm in treatment for an eating disorder. And it's something that I'm not ashamed of. And if you are struggling to, I encourage you to reach out, whether that's to me or to someone else to find help I'm trying to end that stigma.
0: That will help. That will help end the stigma. All of those pieces, all of the comments that people can make, the stories that people can share, the connections people can make. That's how we that's how we change the stigma. We do it together in in connection. That's That's beautiful. Debbie, thank you so much for sharing your story and being open with us and willing to do this and being being you. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you'd like to learn more about the EMILY Program and what we do, visit emilyprogram.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Emily program. Peacemeal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Thanks for listening.